Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. American theater companies were devastated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And as we all try to figure out this new normal, theater companies are doing the same. For some, that means finding ways to be more representative and more responsive to community. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're exploring the changing landscape of American theater. We'll hear about the East-West players in Los Angeles and how they've long celebrated the complexities of Asian-American identity. And the Long Wharf Theater in New Haven is leaving its historic home. So we check back in with artistic director, Jacob Padrone. But first, the 2022 Broadway season has been called one of the most diverse ever in the history of the industry. Earlier this year, director Camille A. Brown became the first Black woman to direct a Broadway show. And this year's Tony nominations featured the first out non-binary and transgender nominees, as well as multiple Black artists nominated in every category. Deep Tran is a theater journalist and critic, and she's been following these trends and how the industry is faring during the pandemic. Her reporting has appeared in Playbill, American Theater, and the New York Times. Deep, welcome to Disrupted. Hi, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. You know, it's exciting times for theater to see this comeback in theater after two years of shutdowns related to COVID and the ability for people to come back together. But so much of what we're hearing in that creative space is that theater has changed over that time. How would you say that the pandemic has changed how the theater industry operates and tells stories? Oh, that's such a big question with so many answers. And so I'll try to keep it very brief. There are many ways it has changed. First of all, there's COVID protocols now, like every show on Broadway and off Broadway has had to hire COVID compliance officers in order to make sure the audiences are vaccinated and everyone wears their mask and to make sure that the artists, the actors, the backstage crew, everyone is also vaccinated and they're getting tested. Um, There's also been a lot of talk behind the scenes in terms of better working conditions. Recently, the Broadway League said that non-disclosure agreements can no longer require actors to keep silent about bad workplace conditions. So uh, we we expect there will be more stories in that vein. But there's also been more people willing to speak up about, you know, needing to go take care of their kids. And so they cannot do a 12 hour day. And that conversation has also been in line with the conversation in the film and television industry in that area. But the biggest thing I think has been the the diversity of work that's being produced on Broadway this season. I don't know if your audience knows this, but this season there was a historic number of Black playwrights and musical theater writers being produced on Broadway. And that's really shifted the landscape in terms of who can get a Broadway production, in terms of who can go to Broadway. There's been a lot of targeted outreach towards like community 
communities of color and younger people to diversify the audience. And so I think the pandemic has really been a time for the theater industry to reevaluate itself and to create better practices and to live up to the values that it has always claimed that it had, but can now be realized more fully. You know, one of the things that's also been clear over this last two years is many people have taken a step back and asked themselves, what is it that I value? What do I want to do? What are the conditions that I want to work in? And I don't have to tolerate it to simply be happy I have a job. And certainly the theater industry is not immune to that realization as well. There was this video I saw on TikTok of Patti LuPone admonishing a theater goer for not having their mask on properly and saying, yes, we are creating this art. Yes, we are part of this theater experience, but we deserve to be safe. The people on the stage, the people behind the stage, that notion of wellness and health that you mentioned and really affirming that. Why do you think theater said, okay, now is the time or or people participating in theater said, now is the time for us to assert our well-being and not just be glad to be here? I think the pandemic has really, because theater was on pause for so long, 18 months, which is a historically long time to not have live performance in this country, I think a lot of people were willing, were, were, were at home and finally had the space to sit and reevaluate this this industry because the theater industry is very fatiguing. Like actors are doing eight shows a week and before that they are in rehearsals for 10 to 12 hours a day. And so there's really no time to really sit and evaluate. And in the theater industry, there is a term, the show must go on. And that means the show has always gone on even when people are injured, even when people are sick. And um, speaking to the Pai Lupone issue of it, there there have been videos over the years of her admonishing audiences for looking for using their phones, and she's taken someone's phone <laughs> away from them once. And, and so I think she's really been the uh, the flag bearer for better audience behavior. Let's talk about that audience behavior because it's important not just in terms of respecting the theater going experience of not being on your phone or not video recording the show and leaking that out in ways that you're not supposed to. But that audience behavior is also about what are the shows that we go to see? And while it's wonderful that we're telling more diverse stories, that there are people coming into theater in different ways, and you have the opportunity for writers and directors and artists to display their art in different ways, it is still an industry that is driven by the box office. And if the shows that get supported are still your standard bearers like Moulin Rouge, And then you have a show like For Colored Girls that may close early because it's not getting the same box office draw. Then the question is, what's the progress being made? What do you think are some of the reasons that we continue to see these disparities in the box office numbers, but also the shows that are deemed as the ones we should support? That's a very complicated question, and I can't really say there's anyone in the industry who truly understands what's happening with audiences right now. But for audience behavior, I can speak to it more broadly in terms of Broadway is very expensive. The average ticket price for Broadway is $123. That was from the 
off box office grosses. And $123, especially in today's inflationary environment, is a lot of money. And if you are taking your family to the theater, I believe some audiences would wonder, what will get me the most value? And unfortunately, when it comes to Broadway, the things that people, audiences find them to be most valuable are things that will entertain them or things with celebrities. And unfortunately, that has meant that shows like For Colored Girls are being ignored. But what's been really bolstering is if we take price out of the equation, there are audiences. And so Ayanna Prescott, who's a producer, she has organized this campaign so that theater lovers can buy tickets for people who want to see the show, but who cannot afford to. And that has bought the show two additional weeks of performances. And so I think you can't talk about audiences on Broadway without talking about the cost of going to Broadway. But there have been shows that that are breaking through, like A Strange Loop that has gotten 11 Tony nominations, the most of the season. And it is about a gay black man living in New York City and speaks very frankly about it. And some people might think it's for a very particular audience, but the audiences on Broadway have been diverse of all ages and ethnicities. And the box office has increased substantially after the Tony nominations. And so I think when it comes to shows like that, there needs to be, you know, critical support, institutional support, better marketing to make sure that that audiences know this show this show exists. I think letting audiences know that those shows exist, the competition that often theater faces from technology and the idea that people say, I can just sit in the comfort of my home and be entertained. What is the enticement to go to Broadway, especially given those barriers? I want to shift a little and go back to something I mentioned before about the ways in which we think about who comes into the theater and how they experience the theater. And so we can't really talk about Broadway right now without talking about this leaked video of Jesse Williams from the production of Take Me Out. And beyond the sort of salacious nature of that, the real question is how do we protect actors and performers in those spaces in this age of technology, especially when they are telling difficult stories that require building this sort of space of trust. Do you think given those considerations, we can truly protect actors or do we just have to accept this is our newer normal? I, and I think ever since those photos were leaked, I think I believe the theater has, has increased the, um, the security measures around that show and installed infrared lighting to make, to see if anyone's actually, you know, using their phone during the show. And I think for the, for certain productions like that, when, when you know there is going to be a risk, those measures are possible to put in place and they are being put in place. And there has been an industry outcry against uh, such practices. So I, I don't think we, you know, the industry needs to accept that, oh, audiences will just be on their phones. And so therefore we do not need to take any, <laughs> any additional measures, you know, just like when I'm at the theater and, and there's someone with their mask is, you know, sliding down their face, the ushers will come and say, please put your mask up. And so the, the theater industry is still determined to maintain like the contract between the audience and, and the artists on stage. And that contract includes 
respecting the form includes being quiet and, and not being on your phone. And it also includes not disseminating images without the artist consent. Because I think when it comes to Jesse Williams situation, he did not consent to his images being used in this in that context of titillation. Let's talk about an, another form of contract, because you've mentioned the contract between the audience and the performers. I want to talk about the contracts between performers and the companies, because we know in looking at the data, from example, uh, from the Actors' Equity Association, there is still a tremendous pay gap amongst performers on a number of dimensions. So even though we're talking about increased diversity, we're prioritizing that in many ways, that equity question remains an issue. What would you recommend that companies need to do to really ensure better equity or stronger equity in the industry? Yeah, I think there's two main things that account for the inequity. Salary negotiations, there's a floor that Broadway producers have to meet. Like there's a minimum they have to pay every performer, but every performer can negotiate separately for a higher rate above the minimum. And many do, such as stars <laughs> like um, Sam Rockwell and Hugh Jackman. But those negotiations are usually done in secret, that those numbers are not open. And so there needs to be more transparency among a company of actors of who who is getting paid what. And then just as in the corporate world, that would allow other actors to better negotiate for themselves. So there is that aspect of it. But there's also the aspect of if you're a leading actor, you tend to get paid more than a supporting actor. And because people of color and other marginalized identities tend to be cast in supporting roles, therefore those actors tend to get paid less, which also accounts for for that that disparity in pay as well and from actors equity and so there just needs to be more leading actors who are of other identities that are not just being a white man getting cast more frequently and more consistently in broadway shows and also off broadway shows as well in order to help close that gap more so this is indeed a diverse time. We're, we're seeing greater diversity and representation in terms of actors, in terms of the shows. But rather than asking you about that deep, I want to go to a tweet that you wrote that has gone viral. And it says, to my reporter friends, a word of advice. Ask POC female LGBTQ artists more questions about craft. Ask white male artists more questions about representation and identity. Tell us why that distinction is so important. I think because when I'm reading work from from news outlets, the most of the time actors of color will usually be asked to comment on their identity and how they bring their identity to a role versus just asking them, are you a method actor? Like what, like what kind of research have you done? And so it gives the impression that actors of color are only being hired because of their identity and it diminishes their skills. And whereas I notice that white actors are usually not asked about their identity and white is not considered an identity, an identity that 
is even commented upon, and that and that was interesting to me. And I think for those of us working in media, like we have the privilege of shaping the cultural conversation and and shaping how people think about art and shaping the stories that get told. And so I feel like for us, if we can just shift a little bit and normalize, you know, asking about whiteness. As an identifier, and also normalize asking artists of all backgrounds about their craft. It could help shift audience perceptions on who they see, you know, on screen and on stage, and also how they think about those artists, and not just think about you know marginalized artists in terms of marginalization. And I think it affirms the artistry. Of the artist and not just the identity of those artists. Deep Tran is a theater journalist and critic, and her reporting has appeared in Playbill, American Theater, and the New York Times. Deep, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. After the break, a conversation with the artistic director of the East West Players on its tradition of centering the multifaceted Asian American experience. And later, how New Haven's Long Wharf Theater is working to attract new audiences. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week on the show, how the theater industry is adapting to better represent and tell the stories of diverse communities. And later, why the Longworth Theater is leaving its historic location and becoming itinerant. But first, Asian American actors have historically been excluded from the industry's biggest stages. According to a 2019 visibility report, Asian Americans only account for about 6% of actors and less than 5% of playwrights in New York performances. And often those roles that go to Asian Americans are stereotyped and they don't fully capture the authentic experiences. The Los Angeles-based East-West players have fought for decades to build a space where Asian-American performers can tell their own stories in their own voices. Sinehal Desai is the producing artistic director of the East-West players. Sinehal, welcome to Disrupted. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because this group, East-West players, has been around for nearly five decades. And it was started by nine creatives who made this into the first Asian American theater company in the country, but it has evolved to become really the leading Asian American theater company. Share with our listeners about the creation of East West Players and what the founders wanted to accomplish with this company. So as you mentioned, East West Players was founded by a group of nine artists. And it was really founded for two things. One was to give Asian American, uh, particularly actors, the opportunity to play roles that they were not traditionally cast in or considered, as was back then in the 60s and it still persists today. Many of the roles that are offered to people of color are stereotypes, right? They are stereotypes or um, very, they're not leading roles. And so it was A, to be uh, considered for those roles and to create those opportunities, particularly at that time in classics. Um, and then the second thing was for for Asian Americans to tell Asian American stories, right? So still so much, particularly in theater, you, we meet so many Asian American ca characters or stories through a white lens. Um, and so they wanted to really disrupt that. 
Even thinking about telling Asian American stories, stories about Asian Americans created by Asian Americans and presented by Asian Americans, as you know, in the U.S., we still struggle with understanding the fullness and the diversity of Asian American identities and cultures and countries of origin. How important is it to East-West players to really display that fullness so that we break beyond sort of the limits of who we think of when we hear the term Asian American and allow those stories to play out? It's vital and integral to our mission and where we are now. I mean, as you put, I like to say that that moniker Asian American is a colonialist monolith, right? Because you are putting together dozens of countries hundreds of cultures and ethnicities and languages and billions of people under one, um, tied to one umbrella, right? So tied to this Asian umbrella. And it's, it's, we don't all have the same experiences or backgrounds and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of commonality, but there's a lot of differences. But under that umbrella, we're all tied together. And here at East West Players, you know, it's eye-opening to folks when I talk about, they're like, well, how do you program? And I program, there isn't an a general Asian American, a generalized Asian American identity, if you will, right? Um, and what we want to do is break apart and talk about the Thai American identity versus the Korean American identity versus, say, particularly the experience of Japanese Americans who have been here longer, but who went through a very harrowing history through their forced incarceration in the internment camps during World War II, and how that has led them to culturally be, be at a different place than, say, the South Asian narrative, which which is much more recent, right? South Asians in this country have been here for a while, but you know the, the bulk of the migration happened in the last 50 to 60 years. There is a sense of power and agency to disrupt that monolithic approach to say, we need to tell our stories to be true to the history and culture of these groups, but to also remind people of those struggles, to move beyond the stereotype and actually tell those stories. And one of the ways that you're able to tell the story is where you tell the story. And I think that's important for our listeners that the the home of your company is located in Little Tokyo at the David Henry Wong Theater. And even having the company in a theater named after David Henry Wong is so important to how the stories are told. Share with our listeners the importance of that building, that location, and that sort of history of connection there. I mean, I think one of the the first things to recognize is that East West Players, as far as I know, is the only Asian American theater company with its own dedicated space. And we don't own that space. It is public pride. You know, it's a city building. But it just talks again about the lack of access and opportunity and a home for Asian American artists. We're very decentralized. And then that particular home, though, it is very, very important. So it's a church that's been converted into an art center. And it's been preserved as a historic site because it was one of the few places that uh, Japanese Americans could leave their belongings before they were sent to the internment camp. Uh, And naming the theater after David is, you know, he's one of the seminal Asian American artists. um, And he talks a lot about how he came of age in the theater because his mother used to play piano for East West players. She used to be an accompanist for our, when we did musicals. And so he grew up in a world where he was, you know, surrounded by artists and he saw and believed that, oh, you know, Asian Americans can make a life doing theater and creating theater and making theater. Um, And so that was something that was every day for him. So he didn't think it was something 
out of the ordinary when he went to Stanford and then started to write plays and tell stories and create a group. It sounds like a sacred space. It, it sounds like a space that holds so much meaning and value and an opportunity to connect and an opportunity to connect to that painful history, but also that ongoing reminder of the power of storytelling and the connection. And I was struck in thinking about that storytelling, that history of East-West Players, that it's founded in 1965, which, you know, many people know is the same year that we got this historic Immigration Act in the United States that changed not only who could come to the U.S., but the notions of citizenship for many people who previously were kept out of those boundaries. And it's also at the time that we're seeing young people and college students coming together to build the Yellow Power Movement, organizing on campuses to demand attention, as well as protesting the war in Vietnam. How do you see that historical context shaping the evolution of the stories that East West can tell? Yeah, I, I think it's two things. You know, a lot of what we do now and that I really push for is excavating our history, right? So that in order for those of us in the diaspora who are born and raised here, right, who, are, who carry Asian American as the moniker versus just Asian, it, it's understanding that we have deeper roots and a longer history to this country and that we and the communities that we come from have helped build up this country. And, you know, I what I love at East West Players is we have a theater for youth program where every year we commission a show about a prominent Asian American and take it into schools. Because when I first came to East West um, and when I would go into LAUSD schools, LAUSD schools, which are overwhelmingly students of color, and I would ask in any of the classrooms, K through 12, for some for the students to name an Asian American they've studied, you can imagine how many na- names and hands went up, right? And how many names came to the front. Even when I do that today, we are still largely, you know, forgotten or our chapter of history has yet to be written and acknowledged. So I feel like that is important. Um, And the other big through line, um, when folks ask what we do at East West Players, what I tell them is empowerment through storytelling. That is what has been our founding impetus, you know what I mean? And that is what has continued. And that's empowerment through storytelling for both our community and our audience, but as well for our artists. So let's talk about that storytelling. You know, what does the current season look like for East-West players, particularly because through this pandemic, people have rediscovered, reconnected, or perhaps first connected with theater going as an experience. What's on tap this season? Yeah, so currently we are in rehearsals for a world premiere new musical, Interstate, uh, which is a about two transgender artists who make who go on this road trip and they kind of their stories kind of uh, parallel each other. And it's this amazing world premiere musical and it's intersectional. Right. So it really talks about issues of race, particularly the API uh, identity, but also gender, gender identity, sexuality. Um, and and it, it's just a very powerful journey. And then, you know, the other big thing is we are also, as you mentioned, downtown, we are also two blocks from the LAPD headquarters and two blocks from LA City Hall. So the unrest was literally out, outside our door, right? I think back from the protests in 2016 to all of the stuff that happened over the last few years, that was all right there. And at, at East West Players, you know, a lot of folks approach us and want to talk about ED&I things. And my big thing is, rather than talking about the work, 
do the work. And what does that mean? And so, you know, during, particularly after um, everything with George Floyd and with Black Lives Matter, I felt like it was really important. I don't think communities of color talk a lot about racism amongst our communities of color and also what it means to be a good ally, because I wanted uh, everyone to understand that particularly when Black Lives Matter was happening, that was not our moment. Right. But what we needed to do was stand in solidarity with the black community because that was their moment. Um, and I wanted to centralize that conversation through storytelling. So we're actually doing three pieces about the black and Asian experience and, the, you know, the conversation between our communities in the fall. And so for me, the other thing is I don't want any other, as, as you know, may know as a person of color or may feel as a person of color, um, is that oftentimes we carry the weight of everyone in our community when we're asked to tell our story or our experience. And I don't want any one artist at East West Players to feel that burden. I want everything to be refracted through multiple lenses when possible. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to those three plays in the fall um, as we explore the relationship between the Black and, and Asian community, particularly in LA, it has a fraught history. Um, and we talk Talk about how we can support each other. And, you know, I think things have come, unfortunately, full circle in that, you know, now in the last year, we've seen a huge increase in hate crimes against Asians and Asian American community. And we've seen a lot of solidarity and support from the Black community. And we're so uh, appreciative for that. I mean, you have me wanting to book flights to come to LA to see the entire season. And I think thinking about that history and that coming full circle moment, you know, one of the greatest lies of white supremacy is that communities of color have to fight each other for crumbs. And in seeing that power and solidarity, that commonality in the experience, that at the end of the day, what every community wants is to be safe and to be seen and how we use that as a starting point. So to have a theater company that also sees itself as a social justice organization to bring people together with a purpose but that's not new for you because you have a Connecticut connection that we have to talk about. You are a graduate of the School of Drama at Yale University. And when you were a student there, you created the South Asian Theater Collective, where you were producing your own pieces, but also creating an affirming space. What was the motivation to create that during your time as a student? While I was in drama school, I, I kept coming back to two things. One, we kept studying what I called the white Western canon, right? So our Ibsen, Chekhov, Shakespeare. And I had a hard time connecting to those stories and those experiences or seeing myself reflected necessarily in them. I know they're supposed to be universal, um, but they weren't the work that my I thought my family would come and see. And then two, you know, while I was in drama school, I was challenged because there weren't many other folks that looked like me there. And that limited what kind of work I could do. And what I wanted to show is that, A, you know, there are Asian Americans and South Asians throughout the Yale and New Haven community, and we are multifaceted, right? And so, and we all have stories to tell. And so they may not all be at the drama school, but they were there in the med school or in the school of forestry or in the college. And we, there was an opportunity for us to band together. I just needed to find, you know, we just need to create the space to do that. And the other thing is it goes back to, you know, I also wrote a solo show while I was there called Finding Ways to Prove You're Not an Al-Qaeda Terrorist When You're Brown. And it really is there that I 
started to look for organizations like East West Players and other artists because I didn't see myself reflected, but I knew I was not the only one. And so uh, where how I ended up at East West Players and what I'm doing now um, came about during that formative time while I was in New Haven. You know, sometimes it feels that things are so heavy and so dark in this country for many people in many different ways. And theater has always been this escape from that reality, but also a reminder of that reality and the possibility for change and connection. As you think about the future of East West players, what gives you hope for that power of storytelling and coming together? We've, you know, we just emerged from a pandemic. If there was ever an opportunity to reset, um, it's now and to look at the world through a new lens. Um, I think the big challenge right now is there is a high nostalgia factor. And I think the thing we want to make sure is that, yes, you can have nostalgia for, for the past or the way things were, but the way things were weren't working for everyone. And I think as long as we are aware of that, as we reflect back and look forward, you know, we're going to be in a really great place. I love that this next generation is really standing up for it, asking for what they want. So I think that is all really, really exciting as we look forward, as is, I think, this acknowledgement of this racial reckoning that needs to happen and has been happening in this country. Um, and I think change is generational. And sometimes it's the long game we have to play. Snehal Desai is producing artistic director at East West Players. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. When we return, what does it mean for the Longworth Theatre in New Haven to go itinerant? We check back in with its artistic director. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. For over 57 years, the Longworth Theater has been a landmark in New Haven. During that time, the stage has featured legendary actors like Sam Watterson, Al Pacino, and Judith Ivey. But earlier this year, the company announced that it's leaving its physical space and becoming an itinerant theater company. Jacob Padrone is the artistic director at the Longworth Theater. Jacob, welcome back to Disrupted. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. You know, it's been about five months since we last spoke on this show, and yes. a lot has happened in that time. <laughs> you know, just a few things. <laughs> just a few things here and there. Probably the biggest development during that time has been the announcement that Longworth Theater will be leaving its home in New Haven, a place that it's been for about 57 years. So for our listeners, the first big thing there is you've decided to move toward this itinerant production model. Share with our listeners what that means to have an itinerant production model and also what motivated that decision. Well, I think I'll start with the second part of the question and then move into the first part. So I think what motivated the decision was we, Longworth Theater wants to be a theater company that belongs to everyone. We want to be a theater company that all can partake in. And we really believe that theater and culture belong to everyone. So in order to manifest that vision and to live that mission fully, uh, rather than being connected to a place that's about bricks and mortar, 
we thought better to be a part of a larger community of artists and to celebrate our relationships. A great theater company doesn't have to be about a building. It can be about a circle of people. And the location of Longworth Theater is pretty inaccessible. Um, if you don't have a car, it's hard to get to. It's not really kind of in the middle of the city. It's sort of on the outskirts off of the highway. And, you know, we felt like our lease was up. And there's also kind of a movement to reimagine sort of how a regional theater can show up for its community. So we thought this is the moment. This is the moment to really do something different. And so an itinerant model is about making theater in different spaces. So rather than being anchored to just one theater space, it's about making art and telling stories in different locations around the city. So rather than folks coming to us, we're going to go to you. We're going to build and co-create with community in and around the city and in and around the region. So having a traveling theater company or an itinerant theater company isn't new in the industry. It is kind of rare for a regional theater company to do this. And so Long Wharf will be one of the first regional theater companies to approach this and to embrace this idea. How do you see this model working for Long Wharf Theater? Well, it is going to be a bit of an experiment because as you as you just mentioned, I mean, we really are building on history. There are there is a history of theater companies not owning any building. And I think about some of the pioneers. I think about the theater company that I came from, El Teatro Campesino, the Farmworker Theater, which made theater on flatbed trucks in the fields of California. I also think about New York. A lot of off-Broadway theaters, they find the right space to tell the story. So they, you know, they have an office space usually somewhere in midtown Manhattan, and then they sort of find a theater space that they rent. So we really are building on a history of innovation, but it is going to be an experiment because you're right. I, I actually don't know any regional theater that has embraced this itinerant model. I think most regional theaters are working so that they can own a space. So right now it's about, it's about research. It's about listening. It's about going in and around the city to find spaces. But one of the things that I have been so energized by Kalila is being able to talk to artists and to say, what is the right container for the story that you want to tell? So rather than saying to artists, this is your space, you got to make it work within this space that we have, you know, we get to really be kind of bespoke is the word that's coming to mind. We get to sort of really tailor the needs of each story, the needs to, of each project to what the artist is envisioning. This is definitely a different approach of shaping the space to the story instead of shaping the story to the space. This all sounds great, right? We'll, we'll yeah. be able to embrace artists, embrace stories, tell stories in different ways. That sounds wonderful. But at the heart of it, there are a lot of people who are feeling a sense of loss that they can tell you the first production that they saw at Longworth Theater. Or, you know, I can tell you what it meant to be headed to a show and to see Brian Dennehy in the same restaurant and think, this is amazing. There's a connection to that space and that memory. What are you hearing about that sense of loss or uncertainty that accompanies this process? Certainly. I mean, I think when you've been in a space for 57 years, there's a lot of memories. There's a lot of stories. There's a lot of community building that has happened. And so we recognize that this is a big shift. We recognize and acknowledge that there is sadness, that there's fear, that there's confusion. 
we acknowledge that this change may affect the lives of people we care about, specifically like the staff and some of the artists that we've been working with. And we acknowledge um, those who have been coming to Long Wharf Theater who've made our future possible, right? Without their support, we wouldn't have been able to survive for 57 years. So we're holding all of that. It's, it's, it's a yes and, you know? And so one of the things that we're trying to do is be just really intentional about holding space to listen to all of those stories, all of those memories, all of those questions, all of those challenges, and then let that inform our future. So, you know, what I, what I keep t- saying to folks who are like, wait, what does this mean? I'm confused. I, I'm going to miss 222 Sergeant Drive. As I say, I hear you. I hear you. And let's go on a journey together. Long Wharf Theater can still be your artistic home. It can still be a home where you're going to see great stories. And we're now going to make new memories together. And Long Wharf Theater can also be a home for people who never felt welcomed. You know, the number of people that I encounter in this community here in New Haven, I've lived here. I mean, I came here for grad school and then I came back to, 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 to take on this job. The number of people that I encounter, Kalila, who say, I, I don't know anything about Long Wharf. That theater company wasn't made in my likeness. So, so we have some work to do. And one of the things that the, that the theater can do is be a space for all of us. And so that's also part of what this itinerant model, I think, offers us. I want to talk about that storytelling element that you just mentioned, the ability to tell these beautiful stories that are often overlooked or not centered in the ways that they should to really reflect the the diversity and the beauty of theater in all of its manifestations. You are now hosting the last show in this physical space, and that will run until June 5th. And that production is Queen by Marjorie Shaker. Talk to us about what we should expect for future programming as you move toward this more itinerant approach. So Queen is, is, is the last show of this current season, but thankfully we were able to give ourselves a little more time to be in the space, a little more time to move out. So we'll have the space until the end of the year. And so what we're going to do is we're going to really take advantage of that. And we're going to do some, some programming in the summer and in the fall. One of the things that we're trying to plan for is ritual, like ritual of like, how do we say goodbye to our space? And so we want to create an experience, probably sometime in September, where we can come together in community to acknowledge the history and the legacy of what we made at that, at that space. And then you know, plan into the future. We're also thinking that we're going to do some play readings. You know, Longworth Theater has a history of seeding the new American theater with new work. So we're going to, we're going to do some play readings of new projects that we're developing. And as you, as you may know, New Haven has a wonderful history of supporting music and specifically jazz. So we're going to do a musical, we think, that really celebrates jazz and the history of jazz. So we still, you know, we, we still have some, we still have some work to do. We still have some magic to create in that space. It sounds, Jacob, like so much of this is still in the collaborative phase, that it's it's not a set and determined, this is what's going to happen. What does success look like for Long Wharf Theater on this new journey? Well, I think that part of what I hope to do in the next, you know, or what we as a theater company hope to do in the next, probably the next two or three years is to really 
listen to the community about how they define success and let that really shape us and guide us. For me personally, as the artistic director, I want to be able to have that moment where I encounter a stranger at the park and I say, you know, that I work for Longworth Theater and they know, they know who we are they, and, and, and that there's a kind of ownership that there's an ownership of the, of the theater company where they can say, that's my theater and that's where I see my stories. That if I, if, if we have more moments like that, that would feel like we've made something really remarkable um, and that we did usher in a new chapter for, for, for all. The other thing that I'm thinking about, Kalila, as I reflect on this question is I think that we are building something for the next generation. And I think about something that Ty Defoe, Ty Defoe is uh, an indigenous artist based in New York City. And one of the things that Ty has said, and it really struck me is, he said, if you are not thinking seven generations ahead, you're not thinking far enough out. And so I'm, I'm thinking about that. Are we thinking seven generations ahead as we manifest this new future for Long Wharf Theater? As we think seven generations ahead, we think about the future, we think about those intergenerational experiences and connections that theater can really curate and foster. What are or one or two challenges and limitations that you see in this process that could be the things that either keep you up at night, Jacob, or motivate you in the morning to continue doing the work? Well, one of the immediate challenges, uh, or one of the things that that Kit Ingwe, Kit Ingwe is our is is our managing director. She is my partner in running the in, in running the theater company. We we certainly would not be where we are without the leadership and vision of Kit. And one of the things that Kit and I are certainly thinking a lot about, and I think it keeps 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 us up at night, is the thing I said earlier about how this change will affect um, the lives of people we care about. Uh, so, so, you know, anytime you make a big change, it's, it is going to be disruptive. And so Kit and I are thinking a lot about how do we make sure that we really care for our community? The other thing that keeps me up at night is the resistance to change. Kalila, I have to be honest that, that, um, you know, we've received letters, phone calls, emails, um, where people are angry and the vitriol. Uh, so it's so that's been um, that's been really unsettling, really difficult, really painful. And and my hope to those who are challenged or who disagree um, that I, I I say to them, you know, give us a chance. Again, give us a chance. We are trying something really bold and what we think is imaginative. It's not to erase the history. Again, we're building on the history of innovation. We are building on the history of creative excellence that has made Longworth Theater this world-class theater company. But I'm not sure how tearing us down when we are trying to build up is going to allow us to think seven generations ahead. I can't help but think that some of the resistance, some of the vitriol that you encounter isn't just about the decision of Longworth, but about who you are and the identities that you bring into a space that have often been marginalized or purposely suppressed. And the ways in which you as the leader in this space encounter that narrative of loss, that resistance to change in very different ways. What would you say is the major benefit for community to have this new approach to do something different, to navigate that challenge and create, as you said, an opportunity for seven generations yet to come? I really am grateful that you're naming that, Kalila, in terms of how identity and all the intersections that are at play here. 
because I've, I've had several folks say to me, and I think that they are trying to maybe be sensitive or think that it's not offensive, but this idea of, I don't see your color. You know, I don't see your color. You are just the artistic director. And, and what I say is, please see my color, because to not see my color means that you are not seeing my full humanity. And, and so it is, it is, I think, to your point, there's a link between this evolution of the theater company and who is in this body, in my body. But I also think, I think about my ancestors. I think about the community that I come from. I think about all, you know, kind of all people of color who, you know, who have been historically um, sidelined. So in answer to your question, I think the benefit is that we can really, really lock arms and build together. We are stronger together. One of the things that I, I feel like I say all the time is I say that when we come together in community, we can find the answers, right? You don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. But when we come together, we will find the answers and that we will build and create together. And, and so I'm excited to think about what, what happens on the other side of this journey together. Jacob Padron is Artistic Director at Long Wharf Theater. Jacob, thank you so much. Thank you, Kalila. You can find links to learn more about the Long Wharf Theater, the East-West Players, and Deep Trans work by visiting our website. It's ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. And you can listen to all of our previous episodes of Disrupted and find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And an important programming note, this episode is the final episode for our producer, Shekinah Collier. Shekinah is a native of New Haven, Connecticut, a graduate of American University, and she's moving on to report for America. Working with Shekinah has been a fantastic experience. And although we're sad to see her go, we are so excited for this next stage of her journey. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.